You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast uh, coming to you from Santa Monica, California today. Uh, this is my, you know, like I, I come down here a few days a week just to mix it up a little bit. Montecito is great, but uh, sometimes it's fun to get out into LA a little bit. And that's what I'm doing here. And um, next week, I'm looking forward to seeing a number of you at our meetup in Phoenix, Scottsdale. Should be fun that uh, Friday and Saturday. Uh, so um, you know, it's always a big party. Looking forward to it. Should be a good time. And um, of course, we will have some great speakers, and many of them will be, uh, at least some of them will be talking about the issue of inflation. And, you know, how is it going to affect our investing in real estate? Because really, you know, that's kind of the ethos of what we do, what I, uh, what I do at least. I don't know what you do for sure, but certainly the ethos of what I do is investing in real estate, particularly multifamily real estate. And, and this affects our investor club, people in our investor club very much. And so... As new investors particularly come along, one of the most common questions I get is, you know, how are increasing rates uh, going to affect the performance of our real estate portfolio? You know, there's a really recurring uh, concern among investors that as rates go up, our net operating income will go down. The good news is that things aren't quite that simple. You see, again, rates don't increase in a vacuum. They don't, it's not like some kind of, you know, single variable event that's not affected by something else in the three-dimensional world. Remember that the reason the Fed is increasing rates right now is because of inflation, right? So we are in, yeah, I'd say we're pretty much in 1980s, close to 1980s territory with a, you know, 8.5 a uh, year over 8.5% year over year inflation, you know, the Federal Reserve has to raise rates in order to keep inflation under control. So that's the thing is, it's not like rates are going up and, uh, you know, now what are we going to do about, uh, what now what are we going to do about our uh, rents and all that, you know, because when you drill down on inflation, it real reveals some very important realities particularly in the multifamily real estate sector. In our high growth markets, we are increasing rates of rents at a pace that is often significantly outpacing inflation right now. So that's the response, right? So that's the response that we get to inflation, or maybe it's actually it's causal. And that is, you know, how we hedge inflation. In other words, we are, we're finding is that we're driving net operating income income at our properties, you know, far in excess to what the the inflation numbers show. As scary as those inflation numbers might sound, so you know, this is why we always talk about real estate as a quote unquote hedge to inflation. And you are living in a period of time where you are seeing that in real time. Not only are we hedging inflation, but arguably in some markets like Phoenix, where we're the second largest landlord we're increasing those rents a lot, making an impact. We're probably one of the reasons for that inflationary data 
to be showing that it's going up the way it is. Um, you know, the specific kind of real estate that we generally focus on in our group and what I focus on at least uh, is it's very helpful because our, you know, our uh, multifamily stuff, our leases are year to year. So we can raise rents appropriately with the economic realities that we see on the ground. And many commercial leases are, on the other hand, multi-year, you know, like businesses and shopping centers and all that. And they have escalations, multi-year fixed contracts can't really be altered to reflect inflation. Now, finally, you know, in our space, you should know that at least uh, our acquisitions and in our investor group, um, which you may or may not be part of, uh, you know, you know that cap rates, first of all, they don't correlate with interest rates in a linear fashion. Cap rates rise slower than interest rates. And we see that statistically. And we also in our group tend to also mitigate that risk by buying rate caps on all of our properties. But the bottom line is, and what I'm getting at here is that in my opinion, high quality multifamily real estate and high growth markets is a great place to be in inflationary environments like we are now, right? I understand the anxiety people have about deploying capital, but remember not investing when there's eight and a half percent year over year inflation uh, essentially guarantees you lose money in the form of buying power. So in other words, fear of deploying capital is not gonna save you any money. It's almost the way you guarantee losing money. But I know it's a complicated topic to drill down on further. And because of that, I invited our, our guest for this week, David Volk, onto uh, Well Formula Podcast in order to discuss it. He is a guy who's very impressive. Uh, Warren Buffett is, uh, has invested in his companies. He's taken multiple companies public, including a REITs. He knows the real estate market. Okay, bottom line. So great guy to hear from. And we will uh, talk with him when we come back from these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Christopher Volk. Christopher has got an unparalleled perspective on what it takes to create a successful enterprise. He's had over 30 years of experience leading three successful publicly traded companies. Has spent even more time providing capital to thousands of businesses uh, throughout the United States with a significant experience in real estate, which is, of course, of major interest to us. He's also the author of The Value of Equation, a business guide to creating wealth for entrepreneurs and investors. Christopher, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Buck, it's an honor to be here. And thanks for thanks for letting me uh, banter with you for a few minutes. Yeah, for sure. We would love to uh, love to get your take. We live in leave we live in interesting times, right, Christopher? <laughs> I think uh, today, in fact, uh, and I'm I'm curious on your take on this, particularly because of your background in real estate, but I think we had some inflation numbers come out today, and it was about what eight and a half percent year over year. You know, when you think about real estate, how how do you look at inflation through the lens of of real estate? Whether that's you know, uh, I know you were doing some commercial lease back type things and that kind of thing, but certainly I'm I'm guessing you have a pretty good idea or thought on how inflation affects real estate as a whole. Yeah, there are a lot of debates on how inflation affects real estate as a whole. Um, uh, I think over time, the evidence is, is pretty clear that real estate tends to, to rise with inflation. For one thing, it just costs more to replace. Um, and that being said, the rental incomes don't exactly uh, move up 
with lockstep with inflation. Um, so on a, on a current income basis, it doesn't necessarily follow that inflation is going to be met by uh, rent increases. If you look at the companies I've run, sort of there's a, there's a relationship, a very loose relationship between cap rates, uh, yields on real estate and, and inflation. And it works something like this, that for every point in the 10-year treasury that goes up, uh, the cap rates go up by half a point. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so if you're, if you're just for sake of argument, if you're levered 50%, so you're putting down 50% equity and you're levered 50%, then that sort of means that your absolute cash flow rate of return stays unchanged um, in, in an inflationary type environment. So it's not really going up, so you, you know, but you're, but it stays un, unchanged. So you're getting a decent absolute rate of return. Um, uh, and then what you're doing is you're taking, you know, we, what we try to do in, in real estate, you can't really match fund leases. So what you try to do is match fund cash flows and make it so that your free cash flow uh, is able to pay down your debt. And then if you're borrowing any more debt, you're using that debt to buy real estate at higher cap rates. And so that's how we would sort of manage inflationary risk. And uh, just to give you an idea of how it's worked for us over over a fairly long period of time, uh, the first public company that I ran, we took public in 94, uh, sold it in 2001 to GE. During that seven-year stretch, the 10-year treasury averaged around 650. Um, our uh, rate of return for investors was 1220. Um, so um, in, a, in, a, in a business format, you know, you're, you're making treasuries times two. So that that's pretty good. Um, the second company we started in 2003 and we sold it in 2007. 10-year treasury was 450. We did 19. Um, so that's even better. Um, and uh, well, the third company is still public. So uh, we'll, you know, hopefully it stays public for a long time. But, but during the time that I ran it, the 10-year treasury was probably two or in change and, and the rate of return was over 13. So, uh, uh, so do, you know, what does that say to you? I mean, I, I, I guess it says to me in a way that, that uh, uh, when 10-year treasuries are high, it, it gets, it's, it, you can still generate really nice rates of return. It's just harder to do it. Yeah. You know, one of the things that uh, when you're talking made me think is the different kinds of real estate certainly makes a difference, right? And in, in, when you're in an inflationary environment like this, you know, having and one of the advantages certainly our group in, in has had is that we do primarily multifamily real estate, mm-hmm. which allows us to raise rents more rapidly on a yearly basis. Whereas if you're doing, you know, triple net uh, or you're doing longer term leases, uh, you you may not be, you may not have written that contract thinking that there would be eight and a half percent inflation year over year. Right. Well, I mean, uh of course, you know, the multifamily space has been pretty good for several years, even before the inflation started ticking right. up the way it has. And um, uh, and a lot of that's been due to supply and demand. You know, um, uh, one of my observations about the economy overall has been that while we've had no inflation to speak of over the last number of years, um, we have had a lot of asset inflation. So right. uh, having, having low interest rates has caused real estate and other hard assets to really soar in value. And as Warren Buffett likes to say, you know, higher interest rates act like gravity on the stock market and other types of uh, investments. And I think that probably includes uh, real estate assets as well. So um, uh, I think that higher rates will probably impose a certain amount of discipline, uh, which will uh, help those people who are in the market and really understand what they're doing and and try to take some of the froth out. I think that uh, certainly for the former public, you know, my, the, the company I used to run, I think it'll be good for them. So, Right. So when you, of course, again, having a fairly the Biden, you know, the Biden administration, I guess they're just 
predicted higher than uh, they were right about this higher than expected inflation. Um, when you think about the real estate sort of drilling down in your experience, like what do you think some of the best places would be, at least from the perspective of hedging inflation within real estate? Or what kind of real estate, um, I should say? Well, well, I mean, I, I am a big fan of multifamily and you're in multifamily, um, but making broad assessments would be hard for me. I, I would say that I'm in the net lease space where I've been, um, I view higher interest rates to be a net positive for the people that are established players out there. There's been a certain amount of cap rate compression uh, that's been out there with the lower rates. Uh, and I think that the um, cap rate compression will start to abate a little bit. Um, and uh, I think that that would be good for that space. Um, um, you know, the, the uh, oftentimes the real estate markets and certainly the public real estate markets uh, behave, they, they, they're concerned about fear of interest rates more than the actual interest rates themselves. So for example, yeah. uh, if the 10-year treasury would stay at three and a half and it would just stay there for a long period of time, um, a lot of uh, real estate investment trusts would perform just brilliantly. Uh, as long as people are just afraid of the volatility of rates, then that causes the markets to depress. And it can also cause uh, you know, some disconnections in the real estate market. I know you, uh, you know, you've written uh, and, and your one of your expertise is in sort of just determining equations or factors or metrics in terms of, um, you know, trying to figure out, you know, ways to evaluate opportunities. When you look right now, uh, what factors and metrics should investors examine um, to determine inflationary impacts on, on real estate or any other investment at this point? Well, different companies have different sensitivities to real estate um, or to inflation, rather. So, uh, so for example, if you have a company that's an asset-heavy company that's got super uh, high levels of inventory or receivables, they're going to have to just pay more for that stuff, even you know whether it's real or inflationary. If sales grow by inflationary numbers, then inflation, the the, the inventory grows by inflationary numbers, and so does receivables. And yeah. and so basically, companies get caught in a cash trap, you know, um, right. and. Right. Uh, uh, you know, one of the advantages of real estate is that real estate doesn't have a high level inventory. There's not a lot of working capital in real estate. So um, uh, relative to companies that have to have that kind of investment, it's a, it's a positive thing. And, you know, given that, it just depends on the type of real estate. Some real estate tends to be much more labor intensive um, uh, and some real estate far less labor intensive. Um, I'm just a big believer personally in just diversifying. And, and, um, uh, and, and I tend to concur with people that think that um, that the inflation won't stay. I mean, but I mean, this is not your garden variety inflation that we're going through right yeah. today. It's not, it's not the uh, 1970s. You know, I graduated from college in 79. So I uh, graduated in the middle of a huge recession and prime hit 21%. And uh, we had stagflation and we had the Arab oil embargo that drove a lot of this stuff uh, much higher for the US uh, and for the rest of the world. I mean, here you have Truly global inflation. I mean, it's not just the U.S.'s problem. It's, it's uh, every country that's uh, been impacted by this. Uh, and the pandemic has definitely contributed a lot to it. And, of course, uh, uh, global situation with uh, uh, the confrontation uh, in uh, Europe is also affecting this and affecting the price of oil, which is affecting the price of everything, gas. Um, and um, I expect over time this will pass. But in the meantime, you have to put some discipline on it, raise some interest rates. And that's actually, I think, a positive thing for everybody. And of course, this economy is pretty strong right now. So I think it can withstand some of that. Yeah. You know, and along that lines, uh, is there, I mean, I guess a lot of people think that, um, 
you know, in raising interest rates, uh, some sort of recession is is fairly inevitable. And funny, I was in the last uh, twenty years or so. It seems like recession has turned into like a, a metaphor for zombie apocalypse, right? It's, <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. In other words, uh, if you have a recession. Uh, how much should real estate investors fear that? Or is it just, hey, you know, we're slowing down a little bit, but it doesn't mean it's the end of the world. We just need to ride this out. And uh, what's what's your take on that? Because I know, especially, you know, those of us who've really uh, been um, active participants in the economy for the last two decades, we have probably a little bit of a warped sense of the business cycles and how it really affects things. Right. Well, I tend to be a long-term thinker on, on this stuff and think that that stuff is going to be resilient over time, you know? So I, I, I mean, you sort of dollar cost average in your business and what you do. So you're buying, you know, you bought, you were in, you were in real estate several years ago and hopefully you'll be in real estate yep. several years from now and, uh, and you'll be buying and selling at different prices. And overall um, the, the goal is to generate really nice, attractive risk adjusted rates of return for yourself and your investors. And I, um, and I, I've behaved likewise in, in the companies we have. When when you're committed to a strategy, you just do it and you execute it. And and, you, and I've done it through a variety of economies. Um, what's what's interesting today is, I mean, you think about where we've been and where we came from to, to have had a 21% prime rate in 1980 or 81, the world couldn't withstand that today. I mean, at, at yeah. that time you had 10 year, uh, the 10-year treasury was, I think, worth a 10%. And so um, uh, the average 10 year, by the way, for, for, you know, if you go back a long ways, it's probably around four and a half, you know, I mean, uh, uh, so I think at four and a half, you, you're talking even issues because it's going to affect the, just the regular home market. I mean, the, the uh, people are concerned today that uh, fixed rate mortgages now are over 5%. So we're not going to see, I don't think interest rates anywhere close to what we saw, you know, in the, in the last huge inflation spike that we had in the, uh, uh, early 80s, because I think that the world economy, let alone the US economy, would have a hard time trying to grapple with that, which which gives to uh, way to the thought that you could have some inflation, but still lower interest rates than you think, right? right. Um, normally, normally, a lot of us were, were bought up raising that, thinking that inflation interest rates were going to rise with lockstep, but they uh, they may not rise with lockstep as much as we, we would have been taught because uh, uh, to raise interest rates to where we were in uh, the early 80s would be pretty uh, draconian. You know, I, uh, I was just thinking when you said that, you know, the way you brought up to to think certain ways. I mean, you could say probably the same thing for the generally for asset markets uh, right now, right? I mean, you went through COVID, and and you would think that uh, you you would think that everything was just fine when you look at the stock market and you look at you know real estate pro- prices and all that sort of thing. What is your take on on this? I guess uh, asset markets almost looking like Teflon. I mean, not reacting to recessions, I guess, and just expecting uh, monetary policy, you know, fiscal policy to come in and bail out, bail them out. I mean, I think there's almost an expectation of that. So you don't really see markets moving in line with any sort of real economic um, data. Well, I think that the market hasn't gotten accustomed to the notion that the inflation is really a long-term uh, phenomenon, and mm-hmm. and and that's and you see that. In, it, I mean, you're in the real estate markets a lot, so real estate markets 
are always working with a rear view mirror. You know, I mean, uh, right. when uh, properties start to decline, the guy who's appraising the asset that you're trying to buy is appraising it on, on based upon six month old comparables, um, mm-hmm. which show the asset being high when the market's going back up. Uh, the the uh, same appraisers are appraising the asset at prices that were super low. Um, and um, uh, what I found was that, uh, I, and you can see this in the bond market, when we were selling bonds at uh, our uh, at Store Capital or uh, the company that I ran up till last year, um, when we were issuing bonds, when the 10-year treasury was hitting one and a half, a lot of times the bond spreads would gap out a lot because the bond investors were thinking, oh, no, this one and a half isn't really real. It's, it's, it, we're, we're not going to have these low rates for a long time. And then, of course, we did have the low rates for a long time. And then the bond spreads started really coming in to sort of more traditional levels because people were comfortable that low rates were going to be around for a while. I, I think that with inflation today, uh, there's enough noise from economists saying that this should be transient. Uh, that people are not really thinking that this is a long-term event and they're not pricing it into everything they do. Yeah. Let's uh, let's pivot a little bit, talk a little bit about your book. Uh, it's called The Value Equation, A Business Guide to Creating Wealth for Entrepreneurs and Investors. Why did you write it? Well, I've been writing articles on this subject for a very long time. And, uh, and then when I was leading Store Capital, we actually did a video series on how businesses create wealth and how uh, people uh, get rich, and one of my observations is there's uh, there are a lot of really wonderful books um, on how to get rich, uh, but one of the things that's really notable is that the richest people in the world uh, tended to make their money in business. Um, so you look at the Forbes 400, without exception, every person in that in that uh, list made their money uh, from business or perhaps inherited money from somebody who did, um, yeah. and. Uh, and so then the question is, well, how do businesses create the wealth, right? I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, because if you could if you could decipher how businesses create wealth, then you're you're cracking the code for how the richest people got that way, you know. Yeah. Um, and there's no business, there's no books on how businesses create wealth. I mean, I went to business school for uh, four years at night and uh, uh, graduated without really understanding how businesses created wealth. Um, it's not really well taught today, uh, but it's insanely important. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so the value equation um, uh, works off of the centerpiece of the book is an equation. It's a six variable equation that I devised in 1999 um, and uh, and have used to help run some of the companies that, that I've guided. And, uh, and it can really sort of simplify uh, how you look at businesses and, and really just drill them down into six essential variables that middle school math, anybody can understand it. It's not that complicated. Uh, it takes away the mysteries of accounting, just focuses on finance because finance is the universal language and it's, it's like music, whereas accounting is not a universal language. Um, and uh, so the idea is to sort of uh, help people understand what it takes to uh, create a company that, that, you know, that creates wealth out of thin air uh, and uh, and therefore gives them a better chance to be able to build a substantial net worth. When you talk about the six variables, what do you think some of the more important variables are? Can you can you give us a sort of a taste of what those uh, you know what those variables are and how you look at them? Sure. Well, the six. Um, uh, I'll list the six quickly for you, and then um, tell you the, the the most important ones. But the the six variables are going to be sales, which is pretty simple. Um, Business investment, not so simple. Uh, it's it's uh, basically the amount of money that you're putting into a business that has to be funded with uh, 
debt and lease capital. Basically, I refer to that as OPM and, uh, and equity. So uh, capital desiring a return. Um, uh, so you have sales, business investment, operating profit margin. And again, you got to deal with this on a cash basis. You're backing out a lot of non-cash depreciation, amortization. Uh, if you're looking at public companies, you're backing out um, stock-based compensation, things like that. Um, uh, and then you have the percentage of your company that's funded with OPM. So you're dealing with the capital stack. So how much money you are you using from OPM? Uh, what's the cost of that OPM? It's the fifth variable. And then the final variable is the maintenance capex, the amount you have to put in uh, to the company every single year to kind of keep it up, you know, um, uh, maintain your, your, your you have multifamily housing, how much do you have to sort of, you know, reinvest into your facilities every year. And uh, that, and, and some of these variables are not really, uh, you, you got to really understand what goes into the variables because there's just more to it than just that. So, so for example, you know, on maintenance capex, uh, you're running a restaurant. You have to replace French fryers every year, that kind of stuff. But then maybe every five years you do a remodel, you know, um, uh, and because uh, you got to do a facelift. It's a consumer facing business. Um, yeah. uh, same thing can happen in real estate. And sometimes I hear people saying, well, it's a non recurring expense or something like that. Well, no, it's yeah. not recurring. It's, it just, this happens. This is part of the whole deal. So, so you, you have to smooth this stuff out. Um, um, now, this is not something that would affect you in, in, in uh, real estate, but for example, uh, if you're looking at operating businesses that are consumer facing, it's really not uncommon for people to close down locations from time to time. I mean, Walmart's closed down a boatload of Sam's Clubs. They've uh, uh, closed. They've closed down smaller WalMarts. They've closed down neighborhood stores, uh, uh, and so uh, you might even include those kinds of losses that occur that, that you incur in that kind of activity into maintenance capex numbers. I mean, it's part of the, the ongoing capex. It's part of what you're doing. Um, uh, same thing if you're buying a company, you're, if you're in the business of buying lots of companies, uh, invariably people lose money on some of the companies they buy when they pursue an M&A strategy. But, um, uh, so that's the six variables, but the um, big three are going to be sales and uh, business investment and uh, operating profit margin. And that's where most entrepreneurs focus most of their time. Um, I would tell you that you can make money on the capital stack decisions. Uh, capital stack decisions are super important. Uh, and um, uh, and then uh, the maintenance capex can come and bite you as well. So uh, the book will spend time talking about that. And the, the goal is, and by the way, when you string these variables together, what, you, what you're getting uh, is what's called a current pre-tax return on equity. You know, what you're getting today, you're an investor in a, uh, it could be, it could be uh, an apartment complex, it could be uh, Walmart, it could be anything. What are you getting today currently? And then, uh, and you're using that as a foundation for deciding what businesses are worth, how much value is created. Uh, and so the book just walks you from that basic formula into everything from business valuation to capital stack decisions. And it's done pretty simply. So it uh, uh, gives you an idea about wealth creation and wealth creation being, I want to make a company worth more than the cost to create. You know, right. And most, most businesses in America or in the world don't rise to that level. Most companies... When, when the people that started them sell them, they can't really recover much more than what they put into them. Um, yeah. uh, they just don't rise to that level. Uh, the people on the Force 400, of course, blew that number away a long time ago. Uh, and most really successful people have been able to create companies for more than they, you know, be able to create companies that are worth more than they cost to create. Because that's when you're sort of really manufacturing money from thin air. And, uh, and only business can do that. I'm just curious in terms of our conversation before about where we are in the economy, is it a good time right now to invest? Is it a good time to start a business? 
is there any sense in trying to time out, you know, a market when you're doing something new or making acquisitions? Well, I mean, uh, there's cycles in every sector, you know, and, and times to get in and out of sectors. I, I was talking to a real estate developer about the value equation and, and, uh, and the real estate developer commented to me that, well, you know, when you're looking at real estate, you know, the timing of how you get in the market, when you get in the market really does matter. You know, I mean, uh, right. uh, whereas let's say if you're uh, a property management company or you're a, a servicer, you're, you know, then the timing is less important, right? You're, yeah. you're uh, uh, not, you're not sitting there making your money on a, on a, on a flip. So I tend to be an optimist about this stuff and think there are, there are always times for people to get into business. I mean, and, and I think there's more money out there in the United States today. I mean, there, there are 10,000 some odd private equity firms and venture capital firms today. When I started my career, there were zero. Um, right. And uh, and so it, there's more money out there than there are for thing, you know, people to invest in. And if people have really good ideas and they have good leadership teams and they have uh, uh, a decent business model, business model being the key, and they think they can generate a return that's higher than uh, expectations, which means that you can generate a company, you create a company that's worth more than it costs to build. If you, if you think you can do that, then you have a chance to raise money to start a business. And that's what makes America exceptional. I mean, it's why this country has about a third of the world's net worth. And we've been leading economy since 1871. And we're, we're about one and a half times the second biggest economy today is because of a free enterprise system that works. Right. So what's next for you, Christopher? I know you wrote this book and you know, you've had multiple companies and exits. Uh, are you working on anything new? Well, right today, the book is, is the, the main thing. Um, and uh, after I get the book out, which will be out in, in uh, May, and you can uh, pre-order it on Amazon and elsewhere, but it, right, right now, the book's the thing. And then uh, after uh, we get in the second half of the year, I'm going to think about what I want to do when I grow up. You know, Meanwhile, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm teaching a class at Cornell University and, and uh, uh, guest lecture from time to time and uh, keeping my hand busy. We certainly appreciate your thoughts and uh, in, in spending your time with us today. Again, the book, once again, is The Value Equation, A Business Guide to Creating Wealth for Entrepreneurs and Investors. And I'm sure you can get that at every major place that you buy books. Is there going to be an Audible book here too, Christopher? I don't know that yet, but uh, I would love to be able to uh, create one. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for joining us. Christopher, we'd love to have you back again in the near future. Okay. Well, Buck, it's a pleasure. I've enjoyed getting to, to meet you and uh, I've enjoyed reading your material. Thank you. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. I think the, the bottom line is the message is just keep doing what we're doing. I think it's the best we can do, frankly. Uh, we are in an asset class that tends to hedge inflation. We're with good operators. We, we invest with good operators. We're we're investing in, in high growth markets and we can, you know, those leases can change every year. We can increase. So it's a good place to be. And it's great to feel like we have, uh, you know, some smart people thinking the same thing. That, and of course, is uh, my view uh, is reinforced what, what David Volk just told you. Anyway, again, we have this event coming up. Uh, I know at this point, it's too late for anybody else to join. But one of the things I should mention here is that if you are interested in having more of a community within Wealth Formula and meeting other investors, certainly the live events are a great way to do it. We also have an online community, though, 
and it's called Wealth Formula Network. If you're interested in joining Wealth Formula Network, it starts with a course. You know, we also have a Facebook page, and then we have bi-weekly live video Zoom calls. Those are recorded, and they're all in the archives as well. Really great opportunity to, you know, kind of pick the brains of others. And, you know, the retention rate in there is very, very high. Once people get in, they, they realize how much they're getting out of it. I encourage you to check it out. Go to wealthformularoadmap.com. Uh, you'll see a big video there that's kind of a cheesy sales video about the course. But, you know, the bottom line is, you know, you have an idea, I think, of what we talk about. And it's just getting into the weeds and getting your questions answered as well. And the course is really good, too. We got Tom Wheelwright um, and uh, Kenny McElroy and some other really smart people there. So that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.